Welcome to the Development Dilemma podcast, a place for the conversations we've been avoiding between expats and locals in the development space. We're here from both sides of the table to tackle development dilemmas and chart how we can do it better. Join me as we start the conversation. I'm really excited to share this podcast that comes from the panel event I held this year in uh, early February with the speaker, Jim Choo Choo. And I wanted to say a few things before you hear it. So I think the first thing is, it was a very powerful, very wide-ranging conversation. And with Jim, we deliberately chose to be quite broad. And with that comes generalizations and ones that I still feel are largely true and fair. Um, But you can be the judge of that. I think the second element is that Jim came with very strong statements that can at times sound quite cynical, but they emanate from his experience as an activist, as an artist of many years trying to face up some of these injustices and seeing the realities and the responses. And what he said and what he shared was echoed a lot by many Kenyans there. At the same time, by no means did all Kenyans agree with what he said. And I think it was largely a case of agreeing with 70% of what he was saying and disagreeing with 30%. And particularly on the point of how do we progress is where we touch less upon and something future events will speak more to, but that in the breakout rooms, there's a lot of energy around what we as both expats as well as Kenyans can do to improve the situation from both our sides. And maybe the last thing to highlight is I found it really refreshing to hear his frank perspective. And if it sounds radical, I think it does so only because of how rare it is to hear someone speak so honestly about these issues in such an audience, in such a space. And as a listener, I would suggest as you hear our discussion, when you disagree, to ask yourself, how much are you disagreeing with the tone as opposed to the actual injustice he's speaking about and the issues that do exist um, from his perspective and many others? So I would just also like to thank Jim, again, for what was a uncomfortable, hard uh, conversation. His honesty, his courage is remarkable, and it comes from a place of reluctance. This isn't a conversation he enjoys having that he wants to have, but he believes in its importance, and I, I really appreciate that. He has kindly followed up with a lot of links and resources to what he talks about in the conversation. So if there are things you'd like to follow up on, I'll be putting up his show notes, which I recommend giving a read. Well, look, thank you all very much for making it out on a Thursday evening to the Development Dilemma podcast. And so the Development Dilemma podcast really came about um, as a result of conversations with friends. And with friends for whom that's kind of their generosity, their vulnerability, I began to kind of see that actually the build an empathy for the fact that the life in the world I inhabit is not always the ones they inhabit. And it was really starting to begin to see how that kind of opened my eyes up to the curtain in a sense I got lifted around some of the injustices that we'll talk about today that of course I still don't have a very good appreciation for but began to see how that was affecting someone who I cared for, who I thought of as a friend deeply and who yet in the same workplaces, in the same social spaces was not treated, it didn't feel like they could be the same person. And so that kind of brought about the podcast and thinking well 
as opposed to complaining about it, which I did a lot of, what would it mean to try to create some more of those conversations? The idea really is to have today a pretty open, pretty honest, and probably uncomfortable conversation <laughs> in front of you all, but to solicit some of those in other spaces as well. So without further ado, I'm delighted to have Jim Choo Choo along with us today. And uh, some of you might have seen his TED Talk. I certainly encourage a lot of people to do so because of its power, because of its clarity. And I think as much as <laughs> you'll hate hearing this, it's very clear the eloquence, the thoughtfulness with which he's taken to his art and to his work. And at the same time, the fact that he's someone who I think is a somewhat reluctant but courageous activist in this space. And so to that extent brings his voice and his time today with us. Yeah, with that, I'd really like to thank Jim and, and ask you to introduce yourself and your oh. art. Oh, hi. hi, my name is Jim. Uh, he's done the whole intro thing. I like that you said that the activist work is a little bit reluctant. Uh, and I think a lot of people here know that when you are African, when you're black, when you're queer, you find yourself doing activism work, not because you want to, but because you have to negotiate your life and your presence and explain yourself. And that tends to become activistic, even if that's not necessarily the intention. Uh, but I'm happy to be here. It's nice to see you guys. Uh, first event I've had in a long time. And I think it's quite brave of, of people to be here. And I have a particular soft spot for the Kenyans who are here because this is like homework for you guys. This is not a fun <laughs> conversation. And you could have been doing something more fun this Thursday evening, but you're here, you know, having this conversation. So I thank you for that. I hope you guys have uh, a nice sweet drink before you because this conversation could go into a, you know some difficult places um, I have lemon juice here and honey so I don't know if that's going to work uh, pray for me Wonderful. Well, thanks, Jim. And, you know, as you said, this is a hard conversation and and not one you want to be having. No. And yet you're here. Why, why is that? Uh, well, the flippant answer would be that I kind of have a big mouth sometimes and I say things and then I an event happens and then it's like I, <laughs> that wasn't the plan. But... I'm surprised that this conversation isn't happening more because the resentment um, that people feel is strong and the questions that Kenyans ask about this situation are, are deep and have been asked for many years and so it's kind of surprising that this isn't happening more often and with people more eloquent than I am who are more on the battleground and foreground than I am because, you know, I'm an artist and I think... It would be lovely to see the people who are on the front lines of, of these difficult relations, the, the gardeners, the ayahs, I hate that word, you know, the people who, who clean up after you guys. I'd like to see those conversations because I, I have such distance from having to engage with this. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And I think, you know, as we start this conversation today, you know, we're bound by and it seems obvious, but we're bound by the words we can use. Mm. And so I'm curious, they can be, words can be limiting, but they can also be freeing. And I'm curious for you, what are kind of the language of injustice that you find and, and how, how you navigate that? We talked about calling this event Inhabiting Injustice, and that for me was important because I, I see the difference between structure and people. Um, structures outlast people, structures are created by people, but then they are enacted by people, right? And so when I talk about inhabiting injustice is that sometimes individuals find themselves um, inside a structure that wasn't created by them. 
Um, and so on some level, they are shielded from the violence of that structure and the history of that structure. And it takes a lot of, well, it takes an open mind, an open eyes to see that the structure you're inhabiting is actually problematic. And I... <coughs> Yeah, so I call it inhabiting injustice because you're sitting inside it yeah. and you are the arms and legs of it uh, and it takes a bit of courage and, 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 and empathy to see that, what you, that your presence is contentious and that the work you're doing, you know, says it is one thing but is other things, yeah. Mm. And when it comes to the, yeah, the language, I guess, yeah. language aspect. Language, no, language. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we are here talking English and you know english is a, is a mongrel of a language it borrows it steals it co-opts and so in a sense there's a violence to english that we inhabit in the same way that i'm just talking about but there are words that english created with the express intention of being violent on people of color there are words in the english language that were created specifically to d d divide human beings based on their color on their on their you know on all this on their gender on their sexuality like and i find those words cruel because like there's no good intention in the word it's just it's a cruel word right expatriate for me is a cruel word or has become a cruel word because expatriate is a coded word for whiteness when people of color go to other countries they are not called expatriates they're called immigrants they're called asylum seekers they're called you know but when white people move through the world they are called expatriates and this separates them even though the intention is the same that people move because they want a better life right expatriates are here because they want a better life and and it's not true that expatriates are here to do good i mean that's probably the story you tell yourselves when you come here but within a month you realize that that this is a better life for you than you, your countries could ever have given you, right? Yeah. yeah, and I think on that, I think there's a, and I can only speak to myself, but there's a naivety with which ignorance and naive you come here thinking some elements of that. Okay. And when you arrive, you go, oh, wow, this is actually, this is pretty good, actually. You know, this, is, this is a really nice place to live, partly because of the problems we'll talk about, right? Yeah. But it then becomes a way of, okay, well, how can I... There's an image I've created at home about why I'm here. Mm -hmm. um, it's an image that benefits me. Yeah. I'm a benevolent person doing good for you know, poor Africans. Yeah. And in reality, you know, I'm here on the beach, flying everywhere else, enjoying these amazing places. What's, what's difficult, I feel, find as well, is not only that kind of duplicitous nature of, of the real purpose why you're here, but beyond that, the lack of recognition in your own spaces about, well, actually, yeah, you know, I am even here recognizing that kind of reality. So you mentioned some of those words, and yeah, to me, I mean, one epitome of this is the notion of kind of Africa as a country, and, and I think you spoke about, yeah, what, what it is obviously beyond that. <laughs> and I guess it, it's important for me here to delineate um, that not all presences are are harmful i'm thinking about i'm thinking about scientists for instance who like for real they they are studying the world and they need to move through the world right we don't have a problem with that right my i think my issue becomes when i see the bulk of expatriates doing such flat busy work like grant management what the fuck are you doing here like we can manage grants 
program management like all these weird like middle titles that don't really mean anything but then the these NGOs and multinationals are willing to pay your flight and and relocation costs just so you can come and push papers here really and that is one of the insults right that you say that even this flat paper pushing none of you can do it in this country and i'm like we speak english we know how to email we know how to press buttons like what what are you doing that's so special yeah no i i completely agree and and i came over as as one of those um one of those people and i think it's fascinating because there's a push right there's a push to bring about more of this discussion thanks to people like yourselves and others and at the same time a lot of global organizations trying to think okay well we need more people in the field which is another yet horrible word and it's interesting because I think the first wave was this notion of well we, we don't really still trust them right so what we're mm. going to send mm. one of ours mm. give them the hardship the cushy life etc and now a little bit more of a notion of actually the people who know Kenya surprisingly best mm. happen to be Kenyan mm. happen, happen to have grown up here happen to know the businesses and it's it's funny how radical that seems given the existing structures mm. uh, yeah you talked earlier about africa you know africa as a country and and, and yes that is for many expatriates tourists you know visitors the this that idea of africa that is like you know pushed at you cnn out of africa all the taylor swift music videos it's like it's like africa is this like dreamy place where you get to cavort on the savannah and then like there's like the, the neg- and, and I'm sorry guys we are going to have to use those words right because this is what we are talking about and I'll probably swear a lot but and then there's the, you know the black people servicing that dream in the background Out of Africa is such a problematic film I hate that the world still talks about it as something that is worth anything there are, work- there are works of art that should be shelved away or put in some kind of art criminal place where it's like this is this is this was a crime against people right because films and books can be criminal in their intent and uh, and out of africa is one of those for me karen blixen and everything that she stood for was a criminal in the sense that you know she she co-opted that image of africa and sold it to the world and so you have all these well-meaning people and you know like it's really it's kind of half amusing and half annoying when you see those kind of you know those experts the ones who come into kenya with like the khaki pants and the <laughs> And it's like, bro, your commute is from Westlands to Lavington every day. Why 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 what is this what is this Indiana Jones outfit? Like are you are you gonna meet like wild savages on the way in Sarit Center, you know? And and that's another insult, right, mm. to the people of Kenya. Because those those khaki pants were the ones that colonial soldiers wore right and those you know funny hats were to protect them from tropical like guys we this is an urban city you fly here you don't ride on a camel into kenya right so give up those aesthetics of indiana jones and like being uh, those things annoy us yeah nikawa na piga picha ya id how a smile niku taking on that i mean you mentioned one of these people you know the people that come in right and you know ourselves foreigners are like some of those might be journalists some depict and those they depict of course yeah the countries within and the the continent as a whole what do you see with how they depict these like there are different kinds of of foreigners we have in kenya there's the tourists who are the most 
intransient, like they're in and out in a couple of days, and they have their problematics, which we could go into, but today we are talking about, about expats. Um, there are the, the humanitarian workers, they have their own kind of ideas about, the, about what they're serving and what they're doing. The correspondents are a particularly poisonous group. They are the ones who frame us. They are the ones who tell stories about us. And the whole idea of the correspondent, and I don't want to go too far into that because that's a whole other event, right? Um, the idea of correspondence as being witnesses to the exoticism of the world and the savagery of the world, and then telling their home countries, man, it's really shitty out here. <laughs> and that allows America to then call us shithole countries because they have this picture of the world. Um, so I do find correspondence to be one of the most problematic because they have such power over our lives, right? Um, the last run-in I had with correspondence was when they, during the Ducet attack, where this ridiculous woman allowed very violent images of Kenyans um, who were murdered in that space to be in the pages of New York Times. And then they involved us as Kenyans in in having to explain to them why that was hurtful to us. I met a Kenyan who discovered that her relative was that person. We are not meat, right? You don't photograph us like meat and publish up, you know? And to this day, that photo is still on the New York Times, that liberal bastion of your country, where all of you go to read about the world with this kind of soft leftist lens. But they think of us as meat, right? So correspondence, they have too much power. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think um, it's really powerfully said. And I'm, I'm stuck here on the other side being uncomfortable because I know this is really true. I'm from a mix of places, but somewhat from Canada and the UK, and, and certainly the UK is, is probably the worst abuser in this kind. I, I'm curious, what, what does it mean to be consistently depicted in this manner, right? Consistently spoken about as well. Not just, and not just limited to outside your country, but within. And, mm. and seeing that by virtue of the large presence of foreigners here who stay, what does that kind of language, that kind of persistent structure uh, yeah, do? I think those things are an attack on the spirit. And attacks on spirit are invisible, right? They, they hit at your ego, they hit at your, your sense that you're a human being who's deserving of, of, of space, of life, of joy. And that's why I find them quite mean-spirited, right? Because Kenya and Sub-Saharan Africa, the whole global south, is a conquered you know, region of the world. We are a, we are a post-war, we are a post-colonial, post-slave, like we are post very many things that had nothing to do with us. I don't need to know so much about you to know that probably two or three generations ago, your family were divided by the British partition, right? This is the way that the world works, that people of color have their lives shaped by the violence of whiteness in ways that change them for generations. And that's why it's always British, Canadian, Indian, because British and Canadian was the place that you had to go, right? And I, I don't meet white people who are as shaped by their own violence as we are. The very fact that we are talking English here, the very fact that the two people of color are here explaining morality 101 to white people is that labor that we are asked to do over and over again to explain our in the experience of injustice 
And that's why I find this work boring because I'm like, why do I need to explain that if you take things from people that are not yours, you give them back? A kid could tell you that, right? Why do I need to tell you that if you're a British person, this country was colonized by the British, right? The Confederate flag is a problem in the US because it is insulting to the history of a whole bunch of people. Well, let me tell you something. Your British bodies are a, are a Confederate flag to us. Mm-hmm. Every time you open your mouth and Oxford and Cambridge come out of your mouths, you're insulting us. Because it is those same accents that were used to give us orders. Mm. They were used to send us into camps. And here you are in 2021 talking to us in those same accents. Mm. Like, come on. Yeah, no, I, and it, it hits home because I, I went to Cambridge, so... <laughs> uh, I, I'm part of the problem. And part of it is the ways in which we come here as foreigners, as expats, without any recognition or discussion of the actual history that's here and, and our own involvement or our country's involvement. And I found it amazing because I came here three, three and a half years ago and there just was never a discussion in a UK, UK aid-funded organization about, oh, hey, why, why are we here? Where does this money come from? What is, why do we have the power we do? Which is just is startling. Yeah, I mean, I know that... Um for every like i don't think that multinationals and ngos do enough i mean do enough to onboard people that they bring in and they they insist on bringing people but then they don't do much onboarding i know that the vast majority of white people in the country are told um don't drink the tap water use insect repellent don't have sex with the natives because they are riddled with stds or they're trying to steal money from you we know that that's what you're told if not by the people who employ you but by your fellow people who've had a bit more time in the country but you know i'm interested in the onboarding that tells you you know what are we doing here you know do we do you have proof that the work you're doing has helped people or has it harmed people do you know that when you tell us jambo you're insulting us because it's only Duolingo that tells you that Jambo is a greeting. The Kenyans don't greet one another with Jambo. Jambo? The fuck? Uh, Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata is really annoying because there are very many Matatas in this country. And, and many of those Matatas, you started them or you are part of them, right? So there's a way that even... And I know it, there's good intention when, you know, like you come and you kind of learn the phrases, the greetings and like 15 ways to say hello in Kenya. But then I've always felt like there, there is a permission that must be granted for you to practice a language on people. Don't mangle my language at me and then like expect me to help you to get better. Because I know that in helping you get better, I, make, I give you the tools to take over, to dominate, to control, right? Too many experts come into the country and have to be taught by the communities what the fuck is going on, right? And then after three years, they start to call themselves experts and start to tell the local communities, I know, right? There's the insult again. And, and the response to language, and, and this is where I picked up your work first, was your thread on silence. The reason I f- found it so powerful was because when I shared it to close Kenyan friends, it spoke to them. You know, it put words to a feeling, to a reality that they inhabit, that they go around the world. And it's, 
And then by contrast, what I know on the other side, in in countless global organizations that are here, is the talk of, oh, the Kenyans around the table, they don't speak up, they don't say what they're thinking, you can't get the, get their ideas, how are we supposed to, you know, we have to just put our own stuff in. So I'm, <laughs> it does need to be at least brought to light that that's what's occurring more. And... Oh, wow, silence. Yeah, I mean, this is a country where silence uh, silence is, is, is resistance, silence is, is, is a kind of freedom, but with a particular lens on, like, the race relations and, like, then silence is subversion. It is our way of saying this is immoral and we don't want to participate in this. It is our way of saying that... Um, we don't like pretending that you guys are the experts and we are the ones supposed to receive your expertise. So people say that Kenyans are docile sometimes. People say Kenyans are... Actually, I hear too often people say Kenyans are really friendly, they smile. And, and I'm like, guys, you, you cannot characterize people based on the people who are being paid to serve you. Of course they're going to smile. You are their salary. So... I find it odd when people say Kenyans are, are friendly. I'm like, you haven't talked to the Kenyans who are not happy about your presence, and those are the ones who give you silence, right? Um, so to my Kenyan brothers, sisters, you must remain silent when you're put into a situation that will demean you, you know, that will extract from you. Then silence. Be as silent as fuck, you know, because like, when you speak, then you open a pathway for extraction, right? You open a path for for conversation that is says it is equal but is not, right? It opens up for people to tell you that why are you voting for the people you're voting for? And I'm like, you voted for Trump. <laughs> you voted for Brexit. And you want to tell us that we have a problematic political culture? Who doesn't? Which country doesn't, right? Um, conversation, silence allows us to, to, to resist having to explain ourselves. And I think that's, that's both very powerful in its, in its defensive mechanism and in the complete right to want to not have to engage in spaces which aren't conducive. And yet there's a reason you're not silent today, right? <laughs> and there is a role for that. And it's a different conversation and it's a different space, mm. hopefully. But it does take, in some ways, in the, in the work context at least, mm. starting to challenge, starting to speak up. Not necessarily directly, in other ways, perhaps joining in forces. But Lorraine, who's, who's a previous wonderful podcast uh, member, and, and she, she put it great, which was like, you know, we work together very close, and she was like, at the end of the day, you are my nine to five problem. And I go home, and I'm with my friends, and with my family, so I don't have to engage. Mm. And I completely get that. Mm. And yet, what does happen in that silence mm. is we walk over you. Well, I'll, put, I'll, I'll give that back to you. If silence for you is an opportunity to walk over people, do I need to finish that sentence? You know what I mean? Like, but I mean, it, yeah. you know what I mean? No, no like, I completely get you, but it, but we do. That, that we is continue the, to yes, walk over. Yes, though, that right? is, like, that we is are not, the inhabiting of not, injustice yeah, that I'm exactly. talking about. We are about, not right? empathetic enough yeah. at the moment, if you look at the structures, Ever. we're not the ones being empathetic mm. throughout all of history. Say, oh, hang on, 
why are they silent or questioning how I've clearly created an environment where someone doesn't feel like they can speak their mind mm. that's not because they don't have ideas mm. <laughs> or intelligible thoughts it's because I haven't created that space well okay then let's continue with that scenario right so you do have the, the Kenyans who are silent and then they're walked over but then you do have the Kenyans who speak up right and the black people who speak up and the queer people who speak up how many times do we have to say that black lives matter even after George Floyd, when the whole world said Black Lives Matter, just, you guys are still shooting black people. So you break the silence, you just get more bullshit. You know what I mean? Like how the first time anyone ever said Black Lives Matter, why did it have to be said again? Because what we got back was, oh, no, all lives matter. Oh, blue lives matter. Purple lives matter. Fuck you. <laughs> you know what we are talking about. Stop gaslighting us. Stop bull bullying us, you know? Mm. So breaking of silence does not mean that things become better. It just means that you get into that trap mm. of breaking silence everywhere you go. I've been breaking silence for the past three years. I have nothing to show for it. I did a TED talk. That's your that's your platform where I can break a silence. <laughs> Nothing's gonna happen. Not a single object's gonna move. Because you guys know that if one object moves, then someone else will say also reparations. That's another thing that needs to move, you know? Mm. So the objects cannot move. It doesn't matter how eloquent I am. It doesn't matter how whether I have an orchestra behind me. It doesn't matter if I do it in multiple languages. Breaking silence doesn't always work. It rarely works. Ask people of color, ask the feminists, ask the queers. There was this, there's this kind of naive leftist idea that freedoms expand with time. Boy, that's going wrong, right? Um, so yeah, no, silence is labor. For, speaking out is labor for us. And your friend Lorraine is right. You are a nine-to-five problem. When I go home, I'm not. When I go home, I'm not breaking silence and explaining myself. I'm resting, right? So I don't want to do this labor. And in fact, I'm sad to hear that silence creates opportunities for more domination, more control, for the expansion of an injustice. And I'm sad to tell you that even when we push back with, our, with breaking silence, all we get is more bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think with that, I think it'd be a good moment to break. <laughs> <laughs> Four questions in audi from the audience, and I see Tekwane. Uh -oh. Yeah, this is uh, quite a very refreshing conversation, given that I'm usually on the other side of the, of the equation. Totally agree with you 101%, I think. I've shifted from saying what you say, and now it's become a situation where, first, I always feel I'm more safer to talk about these things outside of Kenya than I'm inside of Kenya, because most Kenyans that occupy spaces that are very starkly annoying, and you know, you, you find yourself in a room and you're like, guys, we have the privilege to be the host, you know, in Nairobi, they call them, you know, expat spaces, right? But 90% of the people there are Kenyans. Spending more money, having a fantastic life, overly eloquent, overly traveled, well-read. Mm -hmm. But yet, when I try to talk to my Kenyan friend who doesn't need that relationship, mm -hmm. I am the troublemaker, right? So the question becomes, what is the role of us in terms of enabling, you know, mm. enabling this mm. bad behavior mm. of mm. allowing people to diminish who yeah. we are. Yeah. So the reality is, it's not we need them, but we continuously purport the same stories that 
our forefathers purported when we needed to go to their schools, we needed to get their health care, mm-hmm. we needed the jobs. So what's our role as those that occupy those spaces? Yes, talking about it means nothing, mm-hmm. but shutting down spaces with the influence we have at the nest we have this theory about the conversations that are in-house and the conversations that are <laughs> outhouse if you if you will then and and this is cool because instead of us explaining ourselves to whiteness we have so many conversations that we need to have internally right and by sitting here explaining morality 101 you're taking the time away from those conversations, right? You are right. There are Kenyans who dress up to, for the Queen's birthday, right? There are Kenyans who believe that, that the British were better rulers than we ever will be. You used a word that was interesting, needed. You said it often. And for me, that's, that's where I find grace because my role here is to find grace for you people, for my people, you know what I mean? Needed is where capitalism is hiding, right? And where power is hiding. If you tell people that this is the shape of the world, that the lives of white people matter more than black lives, then you say that capitalism is about power, then people will gravitate towards power and they will say what they need. So my question becomes, how can you ever tell who we really are if we are subject to forces that make us need to be white adjacent? This is a world where white adjacency means power. If you look at Brazil, it's like the racial politics is just how close, how can we move ourselves towards being nearest to whiteness as we can. If you look at the caste system in India, it's about white adjacency. The Brahmins are the whitest, right? And the darker ones are untouchable. If you look at Africa, North Africa, that whole bullshit about North Africa separating and calling themselves Middle East is because they don't want to be associated with the blackness of Sub-Saharan Africa. That's why you, as a black people, when you travel to Egypt, you'll meet people doing this to you in the markets, slave. That's why Somalia, with all the craziness happening there, they still call us Mialengumu, right? It's always about how close are you to white adjacency because that means you have more power. Until we, until we move into a world where whiteness is not power, you cannot blame people for angling and jostling to be near it, right? So yes, I do meet Kenyans, and I, was, I remember being disgusted when I think it was a Queen's Jubilee and those Kenyans like angling to go to the British Embassy for some event, which really needs to stop, like God. British embassy. Are there British people here? Talk to your embassy. Why are you having these insulting events in Kenya? Why are you celebrating a queen who is not our queen? The queen owes the whole commonwealth an apology. The queen is literally wearing a diamond that they stole from the Indians. That crown is an insult. And yet you guys want to have parties here to celebrate her birthday? Come on. There is another insult. So yeah. Give Kenyans room to get power because power gives them rent. That's why they smile and they say jumbo. That's why they sing Hakuna Matata at the airport because it'll get them paid. Until you can pay them better, leave them alone. Uh, thank you, Anof. And Jim Chuchu, that's very powerful. My name is Gasheke. Gasheke, I come from uh, that social justice center. 
I've been learning to do bike, biking from Arnoff. That's why I came to this meeting, because it's very far away. It's close to State House, and you know State House control instrument of violence. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you fear coming this far. But <laughs> I'm so inspired in this uh, conversation, especially being a queer African uh, activist. There's a lot of challenge and struggle. But my question is this. African people are taken to slavery, the, the history of colonialism, and now the, this era we are living in. Poverty is violence. Poverty is violence. It manifests it everywhere. Mm. So how you that does the future look like as you talk about capitalism and crisis? If you want to develop and follow that line, that you have a Range Rover, uh, two fridges in, a, in your house, modern apartment that are emerging now, if you want to develop and follow that path, is it sustainable? So what will happen? I'm just worried because this inequality and hopelessness will continue maybe with, be with us if those people who develop fast, they don't accept their privilege. Mm and realize that unless we have social justice in the world, then it will be very difficult. Mm. Thank you, sir. And I don't want this event to become like a whipping event where we line up all the white people and beat them with our sentiment and our anger. No, this is not what's happening here, right? You are right. The, the forces that shape the world as it is right now are we behave as if they're set in stone, right? And that's why it's amusing me to me to see America being unable to raise their minimum wage, right? Because this is the greatest country in the world, in quotes, and you're not able to offer your own people minimum wage, right? That's shameful, guys. You don't get to tell us that you're the greatest country in the world and then be so cruel to your own people. It's sad to me that the two richest men in the world are unaccountable. They are not paying their taxes, right? And then they bore us and bully us with their rockets. And they are taking, like during COVID, the pandemic is happening. And these two idiots are fighting about Mars and, and sending rockets and wasting the world's time, right? Why are we letting these two boys waste so much of the world's time just because they have money, right? Those are some of the things that we as human beings can shift about the world, but we have to agree that, that we as human beings have the power to redesign the world. We are under this fiction that we are not, that we are subject to forces that are righteous and out of our control. Capitalism was not designed by aliens and foisted upon us. And so to answer your questions directly, it is then interesting to be in the global south where we, the world is getting hotter, um, and it's not because we polluted the air, it's because y'all niggas polluted the air, right? 4% of, of climate emissions is coming from the entire global south, 4%. The other 96% is from you guys with your yachts and your flying around. And then you want to tell us now, let's do sustainable. No, you guys do the sustainable stuff. Because we also, you preach to us the idea of utopias, 
and people want their two fridges and their cars right and now you're telling us oh no you can't do that but you guys did right there's been such capture of the oceans and now Russia are like shooting satellites in space so now we're even taking our junk into space and then these two boys have no sense of irony in saying how they want to colonize Mars and the rest of us in Global South are like Mars watch out white people are coming and they're using the same word they used to come here colonize like what is this idea human have that everywhere that humans are not is a is a space for domination silence dominate you know like what is that urge to expand into spaces where other things have their own right to be and you could see all the frustration at cop 26 where all the leaders from the island nations were like you guys are not serious right and it's true like the global north is not serious uh, because being serious about climate justice means that you guys have to slow down not us you guys have to let go of of the amazons and and all those you have to go into degrowth and that's going to be a hard thing if voting rights are a problem try degrowth so hope is not a thing you can tell us about because you are the ones who need to do so much more work than the rest of us, right? To slow down. Here we are bracing for, okay, the worst is going to happen and, and we've seen what the vaccine, what happened with the vaccines, right? Like, you know those movies, those disaster movies where like there's aliens coming and then human beings come together and we all, you know, lift like, no, that's not going to happen. Now we've seen what happens when there's a, there's a global threat. The rich countries will sort themselves out and then start sending us expired things. So imagine how that works when it's an alien invasion. Man, we are fucked. <laughs> you guys are not serious about changing the world. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think if you judge people by their actions, mm-hmm. not their words, because <laughs> we'll talk as if we are, of yeah. course, and we'll get jobs and we'll be paid because we talk as if we are. Yeah. The reality is that. The reality is we buy, we travel, we engage and continue to inhabit the world, mm. purveying those injustices. Yeah. I mean, to Gesheke's point and, and what you raise as well in, in response to Tekwane was the ways in which capitalism, in the way it's structured, in the way it dominates, in the way that, as we know, the power in that dynamic will continue to grow to those who have it already. Mm. It it seems like a losing game. It's the reimagining of a of a different type of richness of wealth. And and it's funny because I think we talk about it as a as a need to have a great reimagining of what does a world of degrowth look like. And it's it's funny because it's such a we have such a narrow vision of history that we think that humans and we're only around for the last kind of 10,000 years or human history we talk about prehistory right like before 10,000 years ago we were irrelevant and, and there's nothing to be learned there mm. and yet for the 160 to 10,000 years that those humans were around and the millions of years other species were we managed to live in a sustainable manner with issues no doubt but in a way where we were in touch we were kind of interacting in a what was still I think a very rich life mm. I mean one piece that Gesheke mentioned was this notion of art mm. and of course that's as an artist that's what does art carry as a way to create some of those imaginings and, and picture the world differently at the risk of repeating my talk and I've said this that for the past three years at the nest we've been working on this object questions and that has been really deeply frustrating because after three years you realize that you're stuck in a dialogue industry not an actual repatriation industry and so you find that there's such expertise about convening people to talk about it and less 
expertise in jiggling the governments to let to change the laws around ownership of objects. So I I said I'm not going to do those conversations anymore because I could see that they were repetitive and 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 performative. But you are right that art does provide for alternatives, and I am interested in how art can allow us to imagine worlds that work better and utopias that aren't necessarily about the future or about hope, which is a bit weird, but utopias that can sit in the present and here with us. But it's much harder to imagine utopias if you're not, if you come from a society that hasn't been given a chance to build a world. The borders of most sub-Saharan countries were not drawn by the people in those countries, right? Europe had a chance to to, you know, do the tribal politics and then call themselves countries, right? And so there's kind of an intentionality to European countries and even America, even though it's like a violent intentionality, allows for world building because you're kind of united in spirit, right? The French are united in being, you know, those pastry people. All, all those countries have their, have their tendencies and because that's a people united. Kenya, you have 46, 48 more tribes because also the British are the ones who kind of even grouped us even to tribe, right? Not just country. Um, and then we, this border was drawn for us in Berlin. And then you're told, okay, go. And then here is independence, bye. You know? And you have people who, who did not get a chance to say this is who we are and this is who we want to be, right? And, and maybe democracy was not the thing that would have worked for us. Maybe countries were never going to be the structure, you know? By dominating the world, you also erase any chance of alternatives because you want the whole world to be free and democratic. Look what America is doing in the Middle East. It's just force, right? You're forcing people to, to look like you, to sound like you. Uh, you're forcing people to use the same structures as you. And any alternatives are erased. I've been reading a book about vernacular architecture. And like, and it's beautiful. Like The world had a chance to be a beautiful place where everyone expressed their homes using the materials from their environment and for the particular needs of their culture. But now look at Nairobi. Spanish villas there, um, French townhouse. Like, what the hell? What are these structures? They don't serve us. And so those utopias that people are talking about, and you can see it, like these glass buildings that we are building, ugly things um, that are mimicking London but not really doing a good job. there's a loss there and there's a lack of confidence then that people have that they have the capacity and the permission and the audacity to shape the world in their image, right? So, yeah, fine. We are civilized. We'll talk English. But man, what have you lost? Yeah. And I think what have you damaged? Because if you speak about it's, it's incredible. Within the space of, depends when you date, the current culture that dominates. But within the space of 500, 1,000, 2,000 years, this one culture which has then spread and propagated and imposed itself everywhere will have managed to put the one thing that was important, our existence, (laughs) into jeopardy. And if that's not a damning of a culture, I don't know what is. The the success of of this culture, this Western culture that dominates, is that it 
closes a lens on the longer history or the facts that are around us, right? And, and the fact that you could look at Kenya before the British and you could look at even up to like, you know, really recently that they were finding ways of cohabitating spaces of living everywhere around the world, right? And, and sadly today, they are the few, you know, we speak of Aboriginal groups or otherwise who have just, just about managed to not yet be killed. And yet that's the one type of culture which was everywhere, right? In different forms that did kind of coexist, did work. When it comes to the price of injustice and, and in particularly doing the right thing, what comes to mind? Oh, morality 101. Okay. And, and like even just talk about the price of injustice, I can give you examples of how the city reshapes itself to accommodate you people in ways that are more damaging than any good you can do. The idea of ambassadorial residence, the idea of UN approved. There's a whole thing where the city has had to make room for you and create and assure you that you are safe in spaces. And it's really funny to me when like if you visit a place like Karura, I think I was there over the weekend and I witnessed such a violent act where a young white woman, you know, with the whole yoga pants thing look and the jogging thing, did a very violent thing where she kind of decided that she didn't want to line up with Kenyans in the queue and kind of went to harass the people who are selling, doing entry for the cars. And she was like, that line is too long. I want to pay here. And so I watched that thing, and and it was really odd because like the the guy who was serving her was not giving the the Kenyan who was looking very annoyed at that interaction, he couldn't give him eye contact, and this white lady who had positioned herself so that she couldn't also see his face because she knew she was doing something wrong, she knew that that was not an honourable engagement. So afterwards, I came and asked him, "Does that happen?" He said. I, I translate. He said, that, "You know, white people are like that, and if you don't, if you don't serve them in that moment, then you are thrown at your lack of customer service, your rudeness, and it's like, uh, you know, I, that was a violent thing I witnessed. And then this lady gets her ticket and jogs off into the forest. And I bet you, she probably is vegan. <laughs> like, you know that person. I'm right? vegan. You know what I mean? Like." She was wearing her politics on her body, but then doing these violences. And, and I want to pick up on that, because I think, I think the mistake is, or I can see how the same thing mm-hmm. would be considered, oh, they have such shit queuing systems here, and I was the smart one. Yeah. Like, they're all idiots yeah. standing in this long queue. Yeah. I'm going to jump it, and I'm the clever one. And, I'm, and it's the very violence that you speak about, and it is violence. Yeah. But that gets painted in on our side of yes, things as, yes. as just the right way to smart. do systems. Yeah. And being smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like white drivers in this country, you can tell how long they've been in the country by how rude and how entitled they are. Because like I guess if you spend a year in Kenya, you're told, oh no, don't be polite. Cut them off. So you have to like really aggressive like, and you're like, God damn. And that's that line between I'm being smart versus you're just being violent because like already you have so many privileges. So to come and duke it out with us here in the streets of Nairobi is like you're just adding another violence to it. But to go back to that question of like a guide to more moral positioning and more moral actions, simple questions. If you're an expert, are you sure that the work you're doing could not have been done by a Kenyan. 
if you're not able to answer that question, you, you're probably inhabiting injustice. I think the question should be, if you don't think anyone in your country could do the job, that's another question. Because the thing is, you would assume, because that's the thing, right? You would assume by virtue of being here, mm -hmm. just because you've been given that position, you would assume no Kenyan would. And I think asking that question, you mm, would just, mm, because mm, we do, you mm, would just push mm, it aside. Mm. But if you had to ask yourself, would I think that I'm the only one in my own country who could do this job? Answer is probably not. Well, likelihood, same as here. Yeah, and I guess maybe every... Maybe many of you come into the country believing that, honestly, this organization that has told you to come to Kenya are doing the right thing and they are really honest when they say that there is no Kenyan who can do this. But within a month or two, surely, you meet enough Kenyans to be like, wait a minute, these niggas are clever, right? They know how to use calculators, right? Right? So, like, then that becomes an individual issue. Coming in, it's a structural issue. It's Greenpeace. It's UN telling you to come in. But then within a month or two, surely, then it becomes your personal issue where you're like, actually, wait, this is not wrong. If communities are having to teach you how to serve them, you're probably not doing the right thing. People shouldn't have to be taught how you can serve them. It means that there's an unnecessary exchange of knowledge. If up after three years of working in Kenya, you are handing over to another expat, you're probably not doing the right thing because the point of you being here should be that eventually you're able to transfer your skills to Kenyans, right? But here you are, grant manager, handing over to the next grant manager. There's a problem there. Uh, and even if the institutions that brought you here will never do the right thing and stop investing in expat staff, you know, the problem with expatriates is that you are just as tenuous in some senses as a tourist, right? We can never have conversations with tourists that will go anywhere because they're here one day and they're gone. Experts are here like maybe a year or two if you're lucky, but then it's always going to be, we're always going to be here starting again 101. Hi, Anav. It'll be the next Anav, you know? And it'll be the same Jim Juju or another tired African who has done a TED talk and now, okay, fine. You know what I mean? And there's something, that's what I mean, that this work can be repetitive and cyclical in ways that are draining. Um, are you addressing the root causes of the problems you are solving here or are you addressing the symptoms if you're here solving poverty then go back to america right and and start working there right if you're solving maternal health problems here women young women are dying in america in europe if you're here saving black lives my god black lives need to be saved in america and and the thing is that by leaving your countries to come and serve people here, you're actually robbing yourself of the mandate of your bloodlines, of your history, of your language. If you're an American in America, you can speak very loudly and say, this is my country and this is not right. Instead, you lose your context, you lose your mandate, you lose your voice, you come here to be taught how to say jumbo, and you, you'll never be able to speak as powerfully as you can as an American. So if you're an American in Kenya, please go back to America. America is burning. America is in trouble. <laughs> and I know it's us who usually told, go back to Africa. I'm really enjoying being able to say, no, you guys go back to America. Go back to the UK and sort out that empire crown thing. It's a problem, guys. You know? Don't fall into the trap of thinking that Africa is a place that needs good. No, this world is hurting. Powerfully said. If one is genuinely talking about skills, your skills 
are context-based. Mm. And if you have them, you most definitely have them better in the place where you've grown up, where you've learned, yeah. where you've engaged, where you have relationships. Mm. And so even on a very simple, obvious point, yeah. it's clear that one should be facing it that mm. way. Well, I wonder, you know, we've, we've had this conversation and it's one of many that may be silent, may not, but I think maybe one thing to add to your list is that silence, right? If you're still hearing silence, yeah. you are doing something wrong. Yeah. Perhaps the last bit, as we spoke about inhabiting injustices, and it's obvious this is multi-layered and it, it, it builds and it represses and it, it's a heavy, very heavy kind of burden to be smothered by yeah. how do you balance the weight and the reality of those injustices and seeing them with open eyes with with just wanting to have a nice life right and not having to address let's be honest then if you want a nice life tell us that that's what's going on stop pretending us that it's poverty reduction or whatever right it's fine to want a better life and stop harassing us who are trying to have a better life there there's a brand of yogurt that i see in the shop it's like Greek yogurt and then it has kids of po- photos of children on it and I'm like what is it poverty flavored yogurt <laughs> were the kids are the kids in the yogurt like and did, did those do those kids know that wherever they are they're the face of poverty in Kenya you know like those are the kind of things where you think you're doing good but actually you're just being crude like who wants to be the face of poverty I know we are the face of poverty sometimes even without wanting it, right? Mm. Kids in, in like places with famine become the face of famine and like they, they do, there's no consent about that. But please don't use that in, in products and tell us that you're doing good. If, if you really want to do poverty yogurt, then also stick the audit of like, give us the whole story then if you want us to give us a sad story with your yogurt because you want to involve us in this story when we want to drink yogurt, right? This conversation, and I know that it has been light in moments, in surprising ways, but now I think I I must close by going into the darkness, right? There's so much crime that experts are able to do because to get into Kenya, all you need is $50. There's no vetting. So you can be that sex predator on every record of sex offenders. You can come into this country with your $50. And so let's talk about that, right? There's so much sexual abuse happening in this country in the hands of foreigners. We have child trafficking happening in the hands of foreigners. We have rape happening in Nanyuki with the soldiers, the Batuk unit. They have set fire to ecosystems while drugged out on coke. And then the British government protects them, right? Now there, now we are not even talking about insults. Now there we are talking about crime, right? There has been harm done to the people of Kenya within this structure, right? There are young men and women who have to sell their bodies to you because you can afford our bodies, right? Agnes Wanjiro was raped, cut into pieces, thrown into a septic tank, and that guy fucked off back to UK. And then when the government of Kenya, because the people of Kenya are so angry, the government of Kenya goes and says that you guys have to deal with this. And the British government goes like, we can pull your aid. And then you guys come and work for that same aid organization that will be the arm of the British government in refusing for its citizens to be held liable for what they did to a Kenyan. So 
you know, there's really dark corners to this. Please know that some people have lost their lives because of these excesses. And we must honor that. And we must chide you all, individually and as societies, for being the people who have enacted that by your presence. Please be aware that sometimes people look at you and remember the faces of people who are so violent to their people. Right? Please remember that you are the embodiment of our version of the Confederate flag. You are a reminder of the weakest part of our history, the part where we were most demeaned. So for all the good that you think you're doing here, you're also such a reminder of the worst parts of our history. And there are businesses that your people really invest in, right? Because, you know, expat culture is also about going on safari and recommending hotels to one another, and you kind of infuse those businesses. But those businesses are so problematic, right? You have places like Giraffe Manor that are always describing themselves as having colonial charm. What was, there was nothing charming about the colonial past. Colonial and charm should never sit together in a sentence. Giraffe Manor sits in this place. Some of you have been there to go and touch giraffes. Guys, no. Please understand where you are. Understand that the land you people are having Airbnbs on is land that was taken from people. Please ad understand that those organic food markets, that food has been grown on land that was taken away from people. Don't insult us. Don't bully us. Yeah. Well, I can only thank you, Jim, for, for breaking your silence in one of the many ways. Open up to, to a last round of questions. I wanted to say two things. One is we talk often about, like, sometimes the sense of paralysis somebody can have when you're just confronted with how terrible everything is. What the fuck do I do? I am a cog. This thing is a massive machine. It will keep turning, etc., etc. I think there's not enough of the challenging small things that goes on even before you ask people to challenge large things so you know if you're being asked as a white person how do i challenge white supremacy mm. and again this it's wild that it has to be me saying this like there's the challenging of the wider structure but then there is how do you challenge it in your home how do you challenge it in your office when you see your accounts office has a weird you know they need africans to submit 82 documents but for white people, it's one phone call and money is sent quickly, you know, and then you don't question that. Mm -hmm. this, this is not the place where you should come and feel paralysis, actually, or feel like the thing is too big. Because it was not too big at work where you say that either we ask everybody for 82 documents or we send everybody after one phone call. But, like, I've literally had conversations with people who work in development uh, who say that, like, the Africans come in an audition in 10 round auditions for $50,000 and $200,000 moved between two people in one five-minute conversations. And it's not, it's not hard to say <laughs> what, what, what race the two people were. It's not hard. Um, so it's things like that. It's things like this cutting of the line. If you see another white person cutting the line, you can go and say, I, I know. And it's the same thing that Eurofeminists say that when men realize that you have a certain kind of power in the world, when people who are coded as masculine, mm. you know, realize that there's a certain kind of power that they have when they move in the world and 
instead of sitting in the little corner of not all men, it's like what do you look around and what can you see that you can change immediately? And that if it is hard for you to find those things, it will not be hard for you to find people who have written about those things because there are so many. There are so many people who've written about you know, white supremacy and how to challenge it in day-to-day life. So many. There are so many people who've written about male supremacy and all these other varied supremacies that hold hands and, you know, kind of make the world horrible. And, and the other thing I wanted to say was about how you, uh, and I really loved the way it was elucidated by, uh, by, by this conversation, that you, the silence is one thing. I think another thing is if nobody has ever told you no. Mm. They've never told you no. They've never asked you why. You know, because those are the two things that make people really question their power. If you have a child and your child and there's a clear power disparity there, and your child says no to you and you feel immediately threatened that you are understanding how power works. Right? And you know how a no can shake your you know, even if it's a child is somebody who's sitting in a high chair, refusing sweet potato that's been mashed with love. You know, you went singing about an airplane, but then with a, within a power disparity, if you have never had a no from a junior person or somebody who has less power than you societally, if you have never had a why, like why should we do things like that? If someone hasn't come and suggested to you a better way of doing a thing, then for sure you're doing something wrong. Or if you have these weird, uncomfortable silences in meetings and then you think that it's because everybody's just ruminating about what you said, I, I have news for you <laughs> that they're probably ruminating about, about, about going to somebody to pray that you lose your job. You know, because that's another thing that Kenyans do, that we are passive-aggressive through prayers. Because that's another thing that people who don't have power do, they have to pray a lot. Because now they have to go and report you to someone who's more powerful than you. You know? Um, I like those two words, no and why. Because, like, we hear no and why often, right? Uh, every embassy in this country is a no and why building, right? And every day you see Kenyans lined up in those little shacks that you guys built because the sun became too much to be asked why. Why do you want to go to Canada? Why do you want to go to Belgium? And then sometimes the answer is no. Too often the answer is no. So when you look at that disparity of that you guys, have, has anyone ever told no? At the, at the line to enter Kenya or why? Yeah, that's a good sign that things are, are problematic. The other thing I tell people is that if you, if you are in Kenya and you find yourself in an all-white space, you're probably inhabiting injustice. The forces that have shaped, and I don't mean this for private spaces like your homes and whatever, or giraffe manor, or I mean that if you're in a public space and somehow you're only white people, you're only experts, you're only Oxford, you're only, there's probably a problem. If everyone, the only Kenyans, the only black people around you are service, then please understand that the forces that have shaped your coming together are not healthy forces. And I can tell you what those forces sometimes are. We have what we call Kenyan cowboys. Some of the most problematic people in this country, and they insult us by calling themselves Kenyan cowboys. Kenyan. We all know how you came into this country, right? With your 10,000 acres in Nanyuki, like we all know how you got that land. But then you insist on appending the word Kenyan to yourself, or even worse, white African. My God, can you go to textbook center and see the Africana section? It's full of problematic people saying, my love affair with Africa. And like, come on guys, stop it. And yeah, there are spaces in Kenya that are all white. 
you know, Mothaiga Country Club, Karen Country Club, and and there are very insulting events that happen there, like the Museum Society talking about colonial charm, mm. and like you can come in and kind of sign up for these things and not really understand that they sometimes there are people in this country who are spiteful enough to organize an event that will insult the memory of this country, and then you come in and you're like, I support culture, Museum Society, I'm, I'm doing a good thing. You're not. You're just kind of inhabiting injustice. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just to pick up on that as well, I think the when there's that no, the knee jerk often is, how can I subvert this? Yeah. How can I use my power, my privilege yeah. to get around this yeah. no rather than respect it? Yeah. And that that is a, a cause for kind of pausing and, and rethinking. Yeah. Man, the Kenyans have really broken the silence today. <laughs> Hi. Hi. It's just like an observation. When it comes to like um, the silence we're talking about, I feel like it's just a symptom of the conditioning that has been passed down to us for generations upon generations upon generations. So back in the times when our parents or great-grandparents were the, you know, slaves and working on the farms, silence meant you had life in the evening to go back to your family. And so now when we're put in spaces where I have to see people that remind me of that trauma, silence is what I will give you back. A space like this will allow me to speak, but when I go to my office and my boss, who happens to be a foreigner, says certain things, you'll see everybody have this giggle. And all Kenyans know that giggle. Yeah? It's a giggle of, oh my God, this is very uncomfortable. You know? Or that smile. And then guys go and say, oh, Kenyans smile all the time. It's, it's not. It's, we've been conditioned to survive. And if I know, if I'm uh, being my true self towards someone who represents oppression, it's not going to end well. So I will keep quiet. I mean, like I said in the beginning, um, I'm not on the front lines. I don't work in an aid agency. I don't have a white boss. I'd had a white boss once and he was, it was one of the worst experiences of my life. This guy actually once told me, here's your phone, call your mother and tell her she wasted money on your education. And I'm like, wow, that's so over the top. I guess I was too young to be able to push back on that with every part of me. But like, ask these Kenyans for stories. Today we've talked about theory, we've explained the logic but ask Kenyans for stories and you'll hear horrible things. So yeah, I'm sorry that that seems to be an experience you have at work. You've talked a lot about what expats are here in Nairobi and a lot of the things I think some of the expats here maybe we didn't even realize were insulting because it comes from a place of ignorance, right? And that's why we're here to listen to this conversation and become less ignorant. And that's a long learning process for any human. Yeah. But I want to ask, like, again, you said a lot about what is insulting about being an expat here, but what can... I don't work in aid, and I'm not a vegan, <laughs> and I don't do yoga, <laughs> but um, what can I do? I am just here because I have like to live in different countries, and this is my fourth country, and I just want to live. What can I do to kind of what we touched slightly on, but to me it wasn't enough, but how can some of us live here because we find it beautiful, but without being insulting or hurtful. I mean, no pressure on that light question. <laughs> yeah, wow, I... It's impossible. <laughs> no, 
No, it's just that when people say Kenya is a beautiful country, you know, what what does that mean, you know, because we live in an we live in a country where we've been taught so much that even the animals are more valuable than us. Which is why when you come to our airport, it's like lions and, and warthogs on the walls, not people. And that has really created this impression that Kenya is a land full of beautiful landscapes, beautiful wildlife, and some inconvenient people, right? And that's why even conservation theory in this country is about separating Kenyans from the wildlife and the land, right? Because they don't know how to manage it, and these white conservancies are the ones that can protect Kenya's beauty. Kenya's beauty is a double-edged sword, right? This is a country where if you tell Kenyans that it's beautiful, and they're like, they're poor, right? And they're, and they're marginalized in different ways. You see how that can be difficult? The idea of, of places in the world being beautiful is only an idea that works for people who consume the world, right? In the same way that conservation is only a word that works for people who destroy the world, right? So uh, let, me, uh, let me answer it this way. Your freedom to live in beautiful places is not a freedom that everyone has. And that is what's problematic about it. And there's no way for me to pull back or to give you an answer because it is the very idea of beauty that is the problem, right? Kenya could be a more beautiful country if everyone in it was free. That's beauty for me. It's not about, it's not about putting razor wire around the beautiful spaces to prevent Kenyans from making them ugly. Kenyans don't like ugliness. Kenyans like flowers. Kenyans like to laugh. They like to live, right? They also want to live in a beautiful country. You get to live in beautiful Kenya. Kenyans don't get to live in beautiful Kenya. So there's no way for your presence to not be insulting because the structure of beauty is the problem here. So I'm sorry. There's no, there's no way for me to give you an answer that'll, that'll work. Kenya is a beautiful country for you. My name is Gloria, and the reason why I really insisted on speaking is because I feel that you could have helped the lady who asked how she could educate herself. And yes, I also picked up on the, oh, and I live in a beautiful country. It, it might seem trivial, and it does have a whole history of, you know, Africa the beautiful. I've, I've been on that side of the table. But then I would say, it's, it's not all lost. You educate yourself. Where I am right now for my work, I am definitely in a position of extreme privilege. And I'm still like black expat. There are multiple layers. I am a black expatriate, super privileged, whatnot. But then also in a country where there's a very heavy history. Mm. Even a history that, as a Kenyan, I can't even come close to comprehending it. But educate yourself. Make local friends. If out of your ten friends, seven of them are from Europe, it's a problem. Learn to talk to locals. That read, read, read. A lot of it is in books. It's in talking to your friends every day. It's in also reading the news. Because when you read the news, you realize it doesn't actually reflect what my local friends are saying. And just be very careful with your words. Words can have a very heavy meaning. Be just in your dealings. Treat your local staff how you'd like to be treated. And already remember there's a power dynamic. You already, even if you're 20, 
you're already white. That's already a power dynamic. So just always recognize the power you have. Recognize that power, uh, recognize that it really influences how everybody relates with you from mm. your guard, your cleaner, to the person at the mall who will not check your bag but will insist on checking all my bags, you know. I guess just be as just as you can. You want to live here with a conscience and a good one. And then also just don't say you want to live in a beautiful country. I mean, I found France hella beautiful. And if I say I want to live in France because it's beautiful, the connotation behind it is not the same as when you say I want to live in Africa, the beautiful. It's, it's just different. Interesting conversation. It's just nice listening to the Kenyans speak. And there's a common theme that you can see we have perfected the art of survival the gentleman there talked about aligning herself with power mm. she talked about silence which is also something you've spoken about mm. and the other thing that we do quite well is trivializing almost everything we try to laugh about anything and everything mm. even when it's a very very serious issue you'll see a meme mm. on it and that's really survival we are not addressing the core issue we'll sweep it under the carpet try to make us feel good so that we so i i don't know what we can do as as Kenyan because we also need to take some bit of responsibility and I agree with him completely that some of these conversations when you try to have them with a Kenyan it's just difficult and unless we take it upon ourselves listen I've never thought of of activistic work as as having a syllabus I don't think everyone has the same reaction to injustice and we shouldn't ask everyone to have the same reaction to injustice. If people want to react to terrible things with memes, I'm just glad that they're able to react at all. I'm glad that we can say that Kenyans are jokers because there are other alternatives. There are, there are alternatives for us to be so angry with one another that we, we are always fighting and cutting one another. I think it, there's something miraculous in, in this idea that people can laugh in the face of injustice, can laugh in the face of our history. There's a bit of joy there, even if it's a dark one. And I think that there are people working on, on the difficult problems of this country, right? Here's the thing. Human beings, act, being an activist is not a natural human urge, right? Being an activist is always in response to injustice. And I don't think we should penalize people for wanting to have other reactions to injustice. In, in a way, sometimes activists are just caught in a loop where you speak out once and then you're asked to speak out again. And I'm like, sometimes I don't want to talk, right? And sometimes there are people who can talk way better than me, you know? But because I'm the guy with the TED talk, I, I am asked to go. And it's like that there's an injustice in that kind of trapping people in, in a certain kind of work. Listen, the problem with me is that I love Kenyans. I love us. I love us in our, in our chaos. I love us in our our inappropriate reactions to, to injustice. I love us in our resilience. I love us in our survival. And so when people ask me, can we do better? Can't we? Can't we? Can't we? I'm like, imagine, I love us. And however we want to be, I love us. And maybe that's a place for us to start. If we just love one another, like, in all our flaws, but it's also in our strengths, then, you know, maybe things still move because I think there's more understanding now that even rest is revolutionary, right? Because people think that hard work all the time is the revolutionary act. 
but even resting and refusing and silence, all these other things that we think of as, as not being activistic or being strong, my God, they allow us to see the next day. And maybe that's more important, that we are here tomorrow than that we are angry today, right? Yeah, I love us. Well, I think on that note, just have one final big round of applause for Jim. <laughs> I hope that hard conversation provokes some thought. I have continued to reflect and learn from that conversation even three weeks on. What I really appreciated was Jim's willingness to break his silence. A lot of that resonated with many people, and particularly Kenyans. Uh, at the same time, many Kenyans also wanted to take more responsibility, more action to drive the change. And so certainly in future conversations, there will also be more of a tilt towards how can we improve things as well. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you at a future event.